Across the country, hate crimes are on the rise by more than 25% in the last five years. The good news is there's something you can do about it right here in your community. If you witness or experience a hate crime, you're not alone. And the FBI is here to help and commit it to justice. Report hate crimes at 1-800-CALL-FBI or tips.fbi.gov. Protecting our communities together. Report hate crimes. Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas. And an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best. Follow the evidence in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. Welcome to the podcast. This is Who Killed Teresa and I'm your host, John Allure. I've been uh, procrastinating. Uh, we were we were doing so well. We were going along, telling this story of um, eight eight unsolved murders um, in the late eighties, early nineties, in the Montreal region of Quebec. Uh, we got to number six, uh, Melanie Cabay, and I stalled out and. Um, I was expressing this last night to uh, a listener I know, a guy uh, from Baltimore, uh, Chip, who's always a good uh, person to sound ideas off. And I, he, he said, what's wrong? I said, well, frankly, it's just it's the, the whole thing is bringing me down. And uh, he said, why don't you just tell people that? Which is pretty good advice, actually. So I, that's what I'm I guess that's what I'm doing. Uh, you know, we still got two cases to go, right? Uh, we, we, as I say, finished with the Melanie Cabet, and then we have uh, Mary Chantelle Desjardins, and finally uh, Jalil uh, Campo. Um, but w- part of it is why, why? I mean, you know what the story is. It's you know by now, episode, you know, over a year of episodes, two two young girls, probably under the age of, you know, well, definitely under the age of 20, um, most likely between the ages of 10 and 13, go missing, and then they turn up uh, uh, dead, raped, murdered, strangled, uh, stabbed, beaten, sodomized, uh, you name it. That's, that's, that is... <clears throat> that's what this show should be called now. <laughs> Women who disappear and turn up raped, murdered, sodomized, strangled, uh, etc., et beaten, abused. Um, another one bites the dust. That's that's what we should call this podcast now. Who's, whose turn is it next? The podcast is what we should just call this. Um, because it's frankly... Um, uh, and, and then I guess you, you would say, well, uh, well, then why do it? And I would say, well, someone has to do it, right? Because if you go out on the Internet, you're not going to find uh, the, the information, the details. And it's, it's, it's the details of the information that give the insight 
uh, without that, it's nothing. So um, somebody should do this. Somebody should feel compelled to do this. So why why not uh, why not me? And even though we're we're not going to get into the the seventh case, uh, Mary Chantal today. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll give you the Cliff's Coles note version of it. Uh, she ends up dead. It's still unsolved. That's it. I mean, a ten-year-old girl, and then uh, Jalil Campo, a little, a little, slightly better, ten years old. She ends up dead. They find the guy who killed her, but he's got a history of uh, sexual violence. It, it was it was preventable. Her death was preventable. Um, <clears throat> and then I, I think at one point I said. Uh, you know, when we were talking last year about the cases from the 70s, that there had never been a, a wave like this, particularly in 1977, of, of unsolved murders. I'm, I'm going back on my word because the cases from the late 80s, early 90s are far worse. And as I alluded at one time, you know, specifically this article from La Presse referenced eight of them. But as you delve into them, the number of unsolved cases grows exponentially and uh, the outcome is horrific. And you're just left to wonder, did did the Quebec police solve any crimes at all or did they are, are they just all are they just all left on on the shelf? So although I'm not going to get into uh, uh, Marie Chantal, uh, I do want to pick up where we left off with uh, Melanie Cabet and say a few things about that because there were uh, there were some follow-up um, items that came out of that podcast. Now, recall that uh, Cabet was 19 years old. Um, she, um, she disappeared uh, from Ahuntsic, which is, a, is a, a downtown region in Montreal, and her body was found uh, just just to the north of Montreal. This is uh, June, July of 1994. Um, and it, the curious thing about Cabet is uh, after I, I posted that podcast, uh, I, I also posted a series of pictures, including one was of a like a protest. I think I mentioned that. Uh, for years after, on the uh, the anniversary of uh, Cabe's death, her mom would would do these protests, and so I posted a picture from three people, with, you know, with a signs for I don't know. It says like end violence, or you know, it says one of those things, and in, in the center is a young woman, and of course the photo isn't referenced. We don't know who they are, but um, a friend of mine contacted me and said that that's me in that photo. I said, "What?" She said, "Yeah, I'm the one in the center." And uh, and and then of course, um, I remembered that that years ago she had contacted me with uh, with information, but I forgot. Um, <clears throat> she lived in the Hansik area when when Melanie disappeared, and I believe it's the night before Melanie disappeared. It's either the night before for within within the horizon, the time horizon of her disappearance. She lived in the Hunsik. She was coming home at night and she was accosted by a man that looked very much like Claude LaRouche. Now recall that LaRouche, um, uh, we don't know specifically what he was doing in 94, but by 15 years later, 2009, 
uh, he uh, murders uh, Natasha Cornoyer, and we've alluded to this case a little bit. Uh, Cornoyer was a uh, a corrections worker. She worked for Quebec Corrections in Laval. Uh, and in one night, uh, she disappears from the parking lot of where she uh, she worked uh, at the Quebec Corrections. Um, and the curious thing about that is it always wondered what what, what was LaRouche doing there? And, and having done a little more work on it, <clears throat> LaRouche was not targeting Natasha Cornoyer. He actually was targeting a, a jogging path that was just adjacent to the parking lot of Quebec Corrections. So his intention was to snatch uh, a, a jogger that night. Uh, he he would all, went for a young woman who was jogging by, but just at that instant, uh, a, a man with a dog came by on the path. So he had to interrupt his, his plan and improvise. Man with a dog goes on his way, and then all of a sudden, out comes Natasha Cornoyer from her office. And she had the misfortune of parking her car to the rear of the parking lot, uh, adjacent to or very close to where um, LaRouche was parked waiting uh, for his uh, his victim. So this became a, a, a crime of opportunity. Uh, LaRouche, instead of getting a jogger, went after Cornoyer and the rest we know. She's found in the east end of Montreal, um, murdered, raped, uh, dumped by uh, some uh, like uh, electrical towers. So that that is LaRouche in 2009. But in 19... 19- uh 94 uh, my friend who lived in uh, a hunsik is attacked by a man and she says the guy looked a lot like claude larouche and not only that but she she draws a composite drawing of him and gives it to the the police now i have the drawing and i'll post it but it it looks exactly like claude larouche it's it's unbelievable. And then add to that, <clears throat> LaRouche lived, uh, so so uh, uh, Cabay disappears uh, just in front of the uh, Ahuntsic Park um, along like Rue, Rue uh, Fleury. LaRouche lived, at least in 2009, I don't know about 1994, but in 2009, LaRouche lived five blocks away from where Cabet disappeared. So that's that's the second thing. Now, if if he happened to have been there all this time, I, I, I say Claude LaRouche murdered Melanie Cabet. <clears throat> but what to do about it? He's he's already been tagged as a dangerous offender. He's not going to get out. Um, and uh, if they don't have the forensics, it's it's doubtful that he's going to confess to Cabet's murder. But here's how I feel like I'm pretty certain this is true. So so the, despite the fact that you can't find a lot of information on Cabet, it is considered one of the the high profile cases in in the province of Quebec. I mean, I think I think some of the the ones that are 
most notorious would be um, Isabel Bolduc, uh, Julie Boisvenu, uh, Cabet, um, uh, Mary-Yves Larivière, um, Cédrica Provencher. Those are sort of like the the bellwethers of crime or in some cases unsolved crime against you know sexual violence against women and yet if you go to the Certe de Quebec's cold case website and you're looking for cases recall that Quebec is a Certe de Quebec uh, case because her body was found outside of the jurisdiction of Montreal off the island of Montreal if you go to their website Quebec is not there I mean, Teresa Laura is there, uh, Jocelyn Hull is there, but no Cabay. So why would the Sarité de Québec not be publicizing for further information to clear the cold case of Melanie Cabay? They, and certainly up to at least a couple of years ago, they were being vigilant Certe de Quebec before their, their their website about asking the public for information on this case. There's a there is a uh, a press release that I found um, from I believe the early uh, O's aughts or ones where they're soliciting the public for information on on Melanie Cabet and then all of a sudden it goes silent. They're not looking for anything now. Why would they do that? Because they know. Claude LaRouche murdered her. He's not going to confess. And it's a waste of effort. Uh, both It strains the resources of the Sûreté de Québec to follow up on, on leads. And it, it, it's pointless to ask the public to solve a crime for which they already know the answer. So that's my theory for why Québec does not appear on the Sûreté de Québec's uh, cold case website. And it's it's tragic. I was explaining this to a friend the other day about how it works in, in Canada versus um, the United States. You know, in the United States, uh, uh, Gary Ridgway is, is going to, yeah, he's going to confess um, to 40, 50 murders in the Seattle area because he knows he's never getting out, but he can probably barter for better conditions uh, within prison. I don't know the the, the details of Gary Ridgway's uh, uh, incarceration, but I can I, I, I can imagine that he he negotiated for something in order to give that information, but that's not gonna that's not gonna happen in Canada. Because despite the fact that I say, and I've said it before, I'm sounding like a broken record, that LaRouche is sentenced for life um, and he's a dangerous offender, there's always the chance, right? There's always the chance that these fuckers will, will get out. I mean, don't forget the, the lesson of, uh, of um, Luc Gregoire, who, despite the fact that this uh, Sarté de Québec um, uh, and... Uh, the uh, the uh, <clears throat> excuse me the officer uh, in charge of his case uh, at that time Eric Latour reassuring me that he will never get out just before his his death he he, he was he, he was on the track towards conditional parole 
So never say never in, in Canada is, I, I think, the lesson of these things. And it's, it's, it's depressing. Um, so then you say, so what's the point of, of finding, you know, these, these answers or, or becoming 90% sure of certain things? Um, and, and I guess it's, the point is, well, at least in, in your own mind, you have some some reassurance uh, of how events played out. Uh, you're not you don't have all the answers. You don't have one hundred percent certainty, but at, at least when you when you gather all the information, you're led to some um, pretty close uh, conclusions and insights. As I say, I'm I'm not going to get to the the remainder of the the two last cases of the 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 eight today. I'm just not feeling up to it. But what I will do today is, since so much time has passed, is I'm going to kind of uh, touch on a number of things and do kind of a mop up episode here. Um, I got a catalog of things to follow up on that may or may not be of any interest to you. But um, that's that's all I got. I'm workshopping it. Um, the first is uh, to say uh, the book. Yeah, uh, the book. Um, I, I I got an offer from Random House. Uh, I've I've seen the contract. I've approved the contract. So that's um, that's moving along. And um, you know, knock on wood. Uh, Got to see this through its completion, but um, it, it's it's being done. I'll just tell you, it's being done jointly with myself and Patricia Pearson. We're doing we're doing it together, and Patricia, I've known all my life. She did the series of uh, she did the series of uh, uh, articles for the National Post in two thousand and one. So she's always been there. Um, if you listen to the Minds of Madness uh, podcast. They do a two-part uh, episode on Teresa, and Patricia's on that episode. It's both me and her being interviewed on it. So I felt very strongly that I didn't want to do it alone; that I wanted a writing partner. So we're doing it together, and there, there's a there's a definite strategy to that. Uh, we can a- accomplish a lot more together than than alone. Uh, Patricia's a published author. I'm I'm not, um, who's widely read in. Uh, in English Canada, and um, I, I think it's like twelve or thirteen uh, foreign market countries. Um, and then, conversely, though, um, we thought that I, I would be able to crack uh, the American and the French Quebec market, which she's never been able to penetrate. So that's kind of the strategy there. Which um, <clears throat> so that's moving along. When I know more, I'll tell more. Which leads me to kind of my next thing, uh, the the the, the amuse bouge. <laughs> Why do I love that word? <laughs> uh, episode uh, between now and the Cabay episode was this live performance of a Bad Dreamhouse, and um, uh, it, as I said, it went well. Um, but it's you know it's kind of depressing. I I. I I wanted to do three of those, um, 
you know, ostensibly it's it's really, as I said, it's like a Southern Gothic North uh, North Carolina tale. And I had two more um, planned. One uh, is about the oldest unsolved murder where I live here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the oldest uh, unsolved murder on their books from the 1950s. Um, and then, then the third one I was going to do, I, I hadn't quite decided. I was either going to do uh, like a live podcast on the um, the unsolved uh, uh, murders in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, um, uh, um, a um, group of women who we call the Invisible, Invisible, or Missing, Missing, uh, primarily African-American um, marginalized women. I felt their voice needed to be represented. I was either going to do that or I was going to do um, possibly a series of unsolved murders in Robeson County, uh, down by Lumberton. In, uh, it's just along the South Carolina uh, border. But man, that, that is such, Robeson County is such a hot mess. I'm like, I'm, I was doing a little inquiries into it and I'm like, do I really... I really want to go here. It's it's the poorest of the of the hundred counties in North Carolina. It's considered the poorest, um, marginalized society. Uh, very ethnically diverse. Diverse, uh, you know. There's a, there's um, an indigenous uh, um, population. There's a lot of. Um, um, uh, uh, Latinx uh, population, obviously African American, and I'm just like uh, I don't know if um, I really I, if if I have the, the capabilities of delving into that because such you know despite the fact that you go well let's go looking for a, a, a serial killer there's there, there are so many socioeconomic uh, issues in that community that. I just don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot of value in doing that kind of a podcast. A social justice um, podcast on it might be interesting. I mean, I know a a number of years ago that community got like a federal grant of, I think it's $6.5 million to, um, you know, have an intervention in the community to to have better outcomes on on health and education, et cetera. Now that might be interesting, but anyway, uh, threading back to where I was, um, I wanted to do like three live podcasts and kind of have them like in my portfolio. But the the, the state of that kind of thing here uh, is again, it's, it's depressing. Uh, despite the fact that you know I don't get paid to do those things, I don't, I don't get a you know if I normally if I'm if I'm acting in the community, I at least get some kind of stipend or depending on which theater it is, can be paid quite uh, handsomely. But I don't get paid for that. But there's still costs involved. You know, you gotta you have to rent a facility, um, and it's become cost prohibitive. To, to even perform no one no one can afford <laughs> for me to come for free and and do i don't know what you'd call it a live podcast or talk or it's, it's not a lecture it's a performance um which is um which is unfortunate because part of what i wanted to do i kind of had this idea you know if there's if there's going to be a book release um there's at least going to be a modest junket in Canada 
yeah, you know, at the very least going to, you know, like Montreal, Quebec City, Toronto, etc. You know, promoting a book. And I thought, well, this would be cool to, instead of going and giving a talk, you know, or, you know, a meet and greet, I'd, I'd love to go and, and do like a, a, a little performance, <laughs> a little puppet show. um uh, and i you know the idea was to kind of workshop it uh here um but uh i don't seem to be getting that opportunity but uh, i mean even with that uh dear listeners um if the book comes is you know is is sold in your country i would love look i'll I'll come to Manchester or Melbourne. God, I'll go to Melbourne. I'll go to Oslo. Uh, (laughs) I'll go to anywhere (laughs) where you're listening, right? Promote a book and and you billet me at somebody's house. I'll uh, I'll perform Bad Dream House. That was really my my uh, my shtick. My my intention, my my master plan with with uh, all of this, and if I forgot a city, I apologize. You, you know, you know who's the? the <laughs> there's some large uh, listeners. London, England is is a big listener. Um, a, a lot of Scandinavian countries, which is to my surprise. Um, West Palm Beach is the biggest digester of who killed Teresa. I have no idea why. Um, maybe it's the snowbirds, the Canadians who migrate there. Who, who, who knows? But Wes, hey, thanks, Wes Palm Beach, for being a um, listener. Other things. Uh, so Ter- Teresa has a Wikipedia page. If you if you Google Teresa Lore, um, I think two things come up: uh, the TeresaLore.com website and also the Wikipedia page, which is just kind of a basic. It's like a three paragraph summary. Um, it's what I, I used to read at the beginning of this podcast. I just kind of feel by now, if you've been listening, you. You get the gist of it. I'm not going to read that every time. But for a number of years, I, I had a family photo of Teresa um, in like a green T-shirt, white linen pants, standing in our, our kitchen in St. John, New Brunswick, up there. Um, but then, uh, the you know how Wikipedia uh, works with like data cleansing. There became some question about whether I had the rights to publish it. So they kept persistently taking the photo down um which really really pissed me off i would put it up somebody else would take it down and say you don't have the rights to to public or prove that you have the rights i mean i finally just kind of screamed at one of these data miner guys like um it's our kitchen it's my sister 
do you like want me to tell you what's in the sugar bowl and in the flower pot? Um, and I friggin' took the photo, all right, in the in the summer of 1978. I don't know what else I have to do to prove to you. Anyway, after years and years of uh, frustration, uh, I finally got um, an email from one of these data cleanser guys who said, you know, please accept our apologies. I understand uh, you're frustrated. Uh, we're going to restore the photo. Um, it's back up, um, which made me very, very happy. So so that that happened. Um other things so we had we had an interview i think just before christmas uh with stefan uh luce recall that his mother uh, roxanne luce was was murdered in 1981 in longay quebec uh she's sleeping in her bed somebody came in and bludgeoned her to death uh with the handle of an industrial uh mop or broom wrapped in like electrical cord and uh, i think a, a garbage bag um, that's his misfortune. Uh, and he's got an association there that aids uh, murdered and missing people in, in Quebec. And and uh, Stefan had the brilliant idea of um, taking pictures of victims and placing them on the back of Quebec transport trucks with a, a phone number and sort of saying... Um, um, do you know what happened to me in Compton, Quebec in 1978? Please call. Picture of Teresa. Well, that, that is finally um, uh, up and running um, as of um, early early February. I think February 11th was the first. There's five um, trucks with five photos. Uh, one of Teresa, one of Roxanne, the other two I don't know, who are you know, making deliveries in the, the Quebec area and people, uh, you know, commuting or, you know, driving to their optometrist or going to the grocery store, or whatever, can see this. And the idea, of course, is um, um, that not everyone, believe it or not, is on the Internet. Um, you know, some people don't engage that way, thank God. Um, and they're out, they're out and about and, um, you know, they might, they might see this and they might provide, um, a, a tip to, to my shock when, uh, because Stefan was on the, the news a lot, um, earlier this week, obviously promoting and publishing, you know, publicizing this, a lot of journalists were curious. And, uh, of course the first question that TVA asked is, you know, why isn't the phone number? A police agency. Why is it going to your association? Don't you think that that could, I don't, taint, contaminate evidence? And of course, it, it, it absolutely it could. Um, and I have no problem with Stefan collecting this information whatsoever. I've known him for 10, 15 years. Um, and the answer to that is that the number of hoops you have to jump through in order to get at least from my experience, the Sarté de Québec to agree to something like that, it's its not even worth it. I, I mean, years ago, a, a woman offered a reward of 
$10,000. She said, I'm going to give you $10,000, John. And then the the police can, you know, uh, you do this through, I think, Sun Youth in Quebec. The, the police can set up a hotline. Anybody with information can, you know, call call in and you might, you know, you might get, you might shake the tree on overturn some new stones and the police adamantly would not agree to it. They would not take $10,000 to do this. It's too much of a hassle, too many bad leads, too much work, too hard, too this, too that, excuse after excuse. And I, I finally got fed up and just, just left it. But to my disbelief, I spoke with the SQ earlier this week. I, I, I have a new handler, by the way, and it, I got the guy I was dealing with, uh, Sylvain. I just said I don't want to work with him anymore. He's a he's a prick. Uh, I want somebody new, and they gave me somebody new, uh, Elizabeth, a woman. After <laughs> I don't know how many years, at least eight case handlers, all of them men. They finally had the the wisdom to to give me a woman, and she's she's really she's so far well. You know, again. <laughs> We'll, we'll see. So far, so good. Um, I gave her some homework to do. Obviously, she's got to get up to speed on Teresa's case before I'm going to talk to her. But I pitched this idea. I told her, look, you just need to know that these trucks are going around with Teresa's face on them and a phone number. And I said, I know it's not the best arrangement. You'd, you'd, you'd probably like to, to be the intake uh, agency. She And to as I say, to my shock, she said, we got no problem with that. Um, you know, all information is good information. I have never <laughs> heard the Sarate de Quebec say anything like that. Anything remotely like we're all in this together. Let's let's all try and solve some crimes. You know, they, they're usually so close to the vest with information. It kind of it. You could have knocked me down with a feather when 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 Elizabeth said that to me. You know, of course, as soon as this happens, some other people are semi-critical of it. They're like, well, you what you really need is the, the trucks to be moving across Canada because people people move. Um, and I and I say yes and no. Uh, to begin with, I'd say I, I, I applaud the initial effort. Uh, if somebody's going to make it a national or international thing, it's not going to be me. I'll tell you right now, I got my own work to do. Let somebody else carry that wait. But I would also say that um, it's true that people move around, but um, Quebec stays relatively homogenous. I mean, despite the fact of, you know, Luke Gregoire fucking off to Alberta, um, people tend to stay there, right? They don't really move around a lot. Uh, they, they, they tend to live and die in in Quebec. So I I think the the effort is well worth it and it could lead to who knows some answers for for one of these these five families. I want to turn to something slightly more personal um because it's it's on my mind. Um so th- 39 years ago this this month uh my my sister teresa would have been missing right she she goes missing in november 3rd 78 she's not found until april 13th 1979 so there's this long uh period of uh, 
uncertainty. Um, and um, so it was it was February, you know, not a not a great month. Uh, and my 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 dad did something beautifully illogical. Now, my, you got to understand, my dad was, um, you know, he's Catholic and he, he was raised by, by Jesuits uh, before McGill University. He went to Loyola University in, in uh, Montreal, which is now Concordia, but raised, you know, pr- by, by Jesuit priests. And so, so my dad is like a really rational guy. Like, He's got like this Ignatian decision-making process that is agonizing. It's like, in order, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a joke, really, you know, in order to get an allure to make a decision. You know, it's never spontaneous. It's always, well, it's a contemplative process in order to think things out. So, so that's his M.O., but he, he did this thing. He uh, he comes home one evening, and I'll never forget this. We're, we're in our house in St. John. It would have been just me, because my brother would still have been at Champlain College, me and my parents. And um, we lived, like, in this old Victorian home. And uh, I had the back room, which was, uh, I guess it was the maid's quarters at one time. That was my bedroom. There was a, it was off the kitchen, and even within that, there was a, there was a little kitchenette there. And, um, and that's where I, uh, you know, the kitchenette, we had like a second fridge, which, you know, to store more food, right? Because everybody needs a freezer or something. I don't know. This mentality back then, right? Everybody had like a second freezer or fridge because you never knew when, uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's a... It's from the depression or something, you know. My my mom was always a great hoarder of like tin foil and stuff like that, because <laughs> you never know when you're going to run out. Anyway, I digress. So we're back in this little kitchen, and my dad comes in with a cardboard box, puts it on the floor in this little room, um, and my mom opens it, and out pops this Siberian husky puppy. And I'll never forget it. My mom immediately burst into tears and sort of uh, semi-rage. I remember her, her like, like kind of pounding on, like on his chest, like, no, 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 don't do this. Don't do this to me. And, uh, what it was it was it was a great thing that he did because it was like a an emotional intervention the, the dog was meant to be a buffer for her uh suffering um but her reaction was kind of like i think number 1 was don't don't give me the added responsibility of having to take care of a dog please but also don't allow me to get emotionally attached to something cuz i just I just can't right now. But that dog, uh, we named him Sebastian. That Siberian Husky be- became like the, the most treasured thing to both to both of them, really. Um, and, uh, you know, 
remember, you know, you'd walk, you know, that that dog grew up, believe me, believe me it was, you know, when it was full grown, it was a, a beast. And you never, you, you, you never had to worry about walking around um, St. John at night with, with that dog. Um, and the south end of St. John at that time in the 70s was, was pretty rough. Um, it was very rough. But, you know, you could go anywhere with, with Sebastian. You wouldn't get in trouble. And, of course, you know, the jokes. Is, that, is he walking you or are you walking him? Oh, and like, you hear that like a million times. It's like, yeah, that's really funny. Um, but anyway, so that, that, that happened. And that I think, I think Sebastian lasted like 16 years, something like that. And, and of course, when he finally died, you know, the, that, that hit them pretty hard. Um, but for the, for at least like a 10, 15 year period, it, he, he did act as, as an emotional comfort, um, to them. Um, and it was, uh, quite unlike my father to ever do something like that. I don't know where he got the idea. Um, I know he had to, he had to go out, uh, I, th- I think there was a, like a puppy farm out M- Musquash, uh, anyway like out well he worked at Point La Pro um, which was on the Bay of Funday so out that way he must have seen a sign or something on the way back from work one day and had this notion this idea to to bring home a dog Final thing I'll uh, leave you with. The Bruce MacArthur case in Toronto. Um, if you, if Everyone in Canada knows this, but you're not all from Canada. So Bruce MacArthur, this guy, um, I guess in his 60s, uh, like a vuncular looking guy, um, would often play the part of Santa Claus, you know, Jovial, um, uh, the last person you'd suspect to be uh, a serial killer, right? But I guess he's cut from the cloth of like John Wayne Gacy or something like that, because that's uh, that's what uh, allegedly he was. I think there's five victims now. Um, they all d- primarily disappeared from the the gay village in Toronto, which is, I, th- I think if I have my geography right, is like uh, Wellesley and Sherburne, something like that, uh, where apparently he lived. Um, he had a kind of a, a novel way of disposing of the bodies. He worked as like a, a, a landscape artist, gardener or something like that. A lot of his clients uh, were in, uh, is it Leeside or, or Leesville? It just... Um, just north of the gay village, kind of around where the Mount Pleasant uh, Cemetery is, if I have my geography right. Um, and so he's a landscaper there, and he dispose of the body parts in these, um, like, large planters or potters, you know, very large that you'd have. Um, I don't know how the police eventually um, found him. Um, anecdotally, my, a friend of mine, Pat, is the real estate agent for that region, and he's he's going out of his mind because he's you know obviously these people don't want to live in these homes anymore. They were uh, unaware that uh, 
MacArthur was doing this, and so now they want to move. And Pat's the real estate agent, and he's like, "How am I gonna? How am I gonna sell these homes at anything that isn't a deep discount?" Anyway, that's um, kind of interesting. Anyway, I think a lot of people in the Toronto area um, were, were concerned and and. Uh, th- that there was a serial killer operating when these men were disappearing, and whether the police uh, were were bluffing or not, I, I I know apparently this this woman she's a she's a criminologist candidate at uh, the University of Toronto. Her name is uh, Sasha Reed, and she went to the the Toronto police uh, apparently last summer and said, "You've you've got a problem. You've got a, a serial killer on your hand." Uh, hence, and uh, they uh, poo-pooed her, and uh, you know, uh, or, or or maybe they knew all along and just weren't showing their their cards. Um, but the way she did this was with science. Apparently, uh, Sasha Reed. Well, she she's got two databases. One is it she's been she's been cataloging uh, Canadian um, murder victims uh, with her research assistants, sort of adding the data. And at the same time, she's got a separate database of serial killers, you know, their behaviors, their traits and all this. And you kind of overlay the information. And uh, she didn't get all of MacArthur's information right, but she got, you know, a lot of it right. She she thought he would be in his 30s. He was in his 60s. Obviously, it doesn't... It's it's not too illogical to assume what she did that it would be a white male who did it. Um, although I think she thought it was going to be a, a black male because a lot of the victims uh, were Middle Eastern or uh, men of color. Um, but this is this is interesting. So um, when I read this, I, I was obviously immediately curious, and I, I wrote her and I said, "Can I can I see your information?" And she said, "Yes, uh, as long as I keep it." Uh, confidential and, and in return what I, I said is um, I could maybe give her some inways uh, to the Sarté de Quebec which can be very tough to penetrate um, and w- along with a colleague of mine we could um, you know using uh, the software Tableau potentially make make some maps and uh, because she said she was although she has the GPS coordinates for these cases which is gold right um she didn't have anybody with the the resources to do uh do um mapping uh, visualizations uh, and we do so i've been looking at that data it's very interesting uh and then in in order to get a like an understanding of it and uh, you know conceptualizing um uh, how some maps and visuals might be useful. I went back to uh, Thomas Hargrove's um, Murder Accountability Project website, uh, murderdata.org, um, and really took a deep uh, dive with it. Um, I'd kind of, I, I'd kind of casually seen it, but. If I think anyone who's in the United States or anyone interested in uh, serial murder should look at that site again, and and go. He's he's got very interesting. He's got a tutorial on there. I think one of the drop down menus is how to use this site or something. Take a look at that because it's it's you know the the potential of Thomas Hargrove's work is 
is even um, greater than I originally imagined. And in what he does is uh, he he shows you how because he's using the uniform crime reporting data from the FBI, which is not victim specific, right? But he shows you how you can use his um, data to drill by inference to to drill down to the specific case. And the example he gives is the Jean Benet Ramsey case. Um, for instance, if you go. Uh, if you search on Colorado and a victim under 10 years of age, given sp- specifics of, I, I can't remember the dates of Benet, although she's not mentioned, you, you, you can identify that specific case. And I think that's very powerful. Um, and that's the other thing I didn't realize is despite the visuals, you can download the raw data, which in many cases has notes from the investigators they're not they're not too elaborate but they are they they are fairly specific um this is how i i I was able to kind of identify that robeson county is a hot mess i went to to his site and i and i downloaded the raw data of um all all murders uh of of women in that area in um uh be it strangulation or firearms and uh, or beatings um and there's my gosh there's just so many of, of them it's it's hard to find a thread um but, but you know specifically like I, I looked at chapel hill and um you know one of the cases that's very famous here is of a unc student name her last name i believe is hedgepath uh She's a Native American, and and you can find her very specifically because you know how many Native American murders are there in Chapel Hill? Well, there's only one, right? So you can find that case, um, and just you know looking at that, and then with the potential of like okay, reverse engineering some maps for Canada. I mean, this has long been the frustration. We 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 created some maps. Uh, using Tableau, um, using StatsCam uh, data, but it's, you know, it's it's not very specific. It's not individually based. But Sasha's got that. Um, uh, and she was, she was missing some things, like particularly the data set for Quebec um, was missing a lot of victims. So I said, well, as a, as a gift, as a calling card, uh, I'll give you off the top of my head a hundred cases. Um, certainly, every case that we've talked about here, I, I loaded in into the it's an Excel spreadsheet that she has, um, and I'm going to offer that to her. And then, probably based on that, we're gonna we're gonna build a model just based on Quebec uh, t- to see w- what potentially we can do that would be useful through mapping data and then of course we can apply that to to her entire her entire data set but uh pretty pretty interesting stuff um very very nice of her to share that with me of of course in corresponding with her she you know eventually said um i'm gonna be in montreal in june and we should meet up again i'm like um I don't live in Montreal. I live in North Carolina. I know it's kind of weird, but this is why. Um, but anyway, a very, very nice uh, woman um, with a, a 
a very interesting uh, project um, that could have a lot of uh, potential uh, as long as it's uh, as long as it's used right and uh, we do a little work. I'm going to end with that. Um, kind of do, do the spiel. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on uh, on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at JusticeGuy, J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. That's my personal Twitter handle. And then also there's one specific for this um, podcast, which is at Teresa Laura at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E There's a uh, Facebook page uh, called Who Killed Teresa? The Podcast Join it, like it It's where I periodically give a lot of information The website I mentioned earlier TeresaLore.com If you go to YouTube and search Teresa Lore There's a lot of film footage um, of uh, reports, etc from the era um, I guess the, the biggest one is the <coughs> excuse me the W5 uh, program it's an hour long program that was done I believe in 2005 probing the cases of Teresa Lohr Manon's Bay and uh, Louise Camarin that is there um, anyway that's that's all the housekeeping issues uh, for this episode uh, I'll try and come back and, and finish the story of the eight unsolved murders from the late 80s, 90s next time. But for this time, this has been Who Killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great afternoon. For the ones going above and beyond. For the ones reaching out, helping out, and lending a hand. For the ones people count on. You can count on Granger. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. Backed by 24-7 customer support and specialists to help with hard-to-find products. Because you've got everyone's back. We've got yours. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.
True Crime on A&E, with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking True Crime, every Thursday and Friday on A&E.